Let me just repeat what I had just finished off in the last tape. Remember that as a result of the Chet of Adam Rishon, man now has two tasks which he must perform. The first task which he has to perform is that he must remove that kilkel, that damage which he has done to the Bria. In other words, man has caused or contributed to added hester, added concealment of the presence of the Rabbani Shalom in the Bria. And that, of course, has been caused by the Chet of Adam Rishon, by the sin of man. And this was in a direct response to the fact that man saw himself as an independent being of God. Therefore, the universe must reflect that comprehension of man, by man. And therefore, the universe itself mirrors itself with many different forces and beings, which, of course, is the way that the universe manifests the Hester Yehudoi. Now, Therefore, the first task that man would have to do is to remove his contributing Hester. Now, how would he do that? He would have to dissipate the Koyach, the power of the Sitra Akhra. Why? Because the Sitra Akhra is the one that makes Choshech, darkness. In other words, how does he do it? He gives success to all kinds of individuals who want to establish the idea that God does not exist. That God is not the sole entity and cause of reality. He promotes this multiplicity and plurality of beings and forces. And the Sitra Akhra, of course, is able to do this because Mida connected Mida. Man has insisted, insisted, or Adam Rishon has insisted on believing that he is an independent force, an independent being from God, and therefore he sinned. Therefore, the Sitra Akhra the side of evil, the forces of evil, or the Yitzhahara, Malchamava, Samuel, whatever you want to call them, has the ability to then fool man and actually influence reality where there is truly an illusion of plurality and multiplicity of forces and beings in the world. So therefore, if the Sitra Akhra, who is reacting as Mida connected Mida from man, from man's Chet, if he is the one that's causing this, you've got to dissipate his koyach. So therefore, it becomes necessary that the task be that you must interact and fight the sitra akhra. How do you do that? By interacting with ulim hazeh, with this material world, and subduing it to employ it in the service of the Rabbani Shalom. That's how it's done. You fight the Yitzhahara by entering his arena, which is Ilam Hazer, and you subdue the Yitzhahara. You use, you employ Ilam Hazer, all the material substances of this entire world, into the service of the Rabbani Islam. In other words, you fight the Sitra Akhra, which urges you to use it for your own needs and drives. You fight your Yitzhahara. And instead of using it in your own service, for your own needs and drives, you subjugate it, you, on the contrary, you dedicate it, you redirect the material world to the Ratzon of the Rabbani Shalom, and this is how you subdue or you take away or you dissipate the force of the Sitra Akhra by remaining at Sadiq, in Ilim Hazer. That is how he loses his power, which is causes Midikinegid you proclaim the unity of God by using the material world to proclaim his oneness by the mitzvahs. Therefore, the Sitra Akhra cannot mirror reality with forces and beings, the multiplicity of forces and beings. The same idea. And that is the way you dissipate his power. Now,
if you notice that this kind of a personality or this kind of a task demands gvura, tremendous strength. And gvura, of course, is the idea of the Mashiach bin Yusuf. This task falls to the Mashiach bin Yusuf. Now, what is gvura? Gvura is that disposition of the Rabbanish Islam, which is a withholding or restraining force on the Rabbanish Islam's toiv. In man, as if, if you recall, I mentioned, that it manifests itself, that, this, that man restrains or resists his own natural tendency, which is the Yitzhahara. So therefore, the Mashiach ben Yosef, who is specifically delegated this particular task of dissipating the koyach, the force of the Sitra Akhra, therefore the Sitra Akhra will no more be able to conceal reality and uh, create a multiplicity and plurality of different forces and beings, that this is his task, and he's able to do it by interacting with Oilim Hazer and restraining or fighting the Yitzhahara. This is the disposition of the Mashiach ben Yosef, which is tremendous gvura. And of course, <laughs> this emanates from the gvura of the Rabbani Shlom. That is exactly what his meter is. So therefore, the essence of the idea is that the Mashiach ben Yosef, the task is to involve yourself with Ilm Hazer and to subjugate the Sitra Akhra and by not giving in to your own Yitzhahara and therefore proclaiming the unity of God and therefore the unity of God must be revealed through the Bria because the Sitra Akhra loses his power to increase a multiplicity of forces and beings. This is the way the Mashiach ben Yosef does it, and he borrows, or he is given that particular midah of the Rabbani Shalom, that disposition of God, of course, which is Gvura. <coughs> In this way, he dissipates the koyach, the force, the power of the Sitra Akhra. In other words, the Mashiach ben Yosef therefore has a disposition which is inner-directed, where he grows in service to God by tremendous self-control, by tremendous self-perfection to fight the Yitzhahara in the material world. That is the first task. And also, that it must address itself to the Sitra Akhra, and you have to dissipate its force, and the way it's done, as I said, is to interact with Ilm Hazer and to remain at Sadiq, fight the Yitzhahara, and therefore the main attribute or disposition that you have is Gvura, is strength. Now, the second major task is the removal of the original Hassan, that the Mashiach bin Yosef, even if he removes the power of the Sitra Akhra, therefore what he does is he removes the influence of the Sitra Akhra in the Bria, he externalizes Ra or evil, but still, <coughs> you have to correct the original situation of the universe, which is the Hassan, the original Hassan, which was what? The original amount of concealment of God's presence, which the Rabbanishlam made, that was God's contribution, the Rabbanishlam caused it, in order that Adam should be able to be tested in that situation of concealment and realize the truth. Okay? Now, how is this done? This is done through, of course, being masig yechudoi. How does one spread, or rather, how does one remove the chasan? That is done by being masig, the oneness of God, and spreading that truth. Therefore, what that means is that that involves an individual 
who involves himself very intensively with doing mitzvahs and learning Torah and promoting this to all people. You see, it's the, different than the, the task, of course, of the first task, which is the Mashiach ben Yosef. It involves, invo- it involves learning Torah and being involved intensively in mitzvahs and promoting this to all people, and therefore you dissipate or you remove the concealment of the presence of God because you promote it to all. First you promote it to yourself by being involved in mitzvahs and Torah, then you promote it to all peoples. In that way, you spread the knowledge of the Rabbanishram and eventually that concealment of the oneness of God as being the true reality, of course, is revealed. And, of course, you promote it to all peoples that they should reach this hasoga, these hasogas of the oneness of God, and therefore they should serve the Rabbanishram also. This, of course, is the attribute of chesed, kindness, which is, of course, is the main disposition of the Mashiach ben David. Why? Because Chesed or kindness is other directed, where you're involved in spreading to others the unity, the idea of the unity of God, and to be in the service of God. This is chesed. Chesed means you want to give to others. Therefore, the disposition of the Rabbanishlam, which is outer directed, in the case of God, of course, it's to give hatova to everybody, and in the case of an individual, it's to spread the knowledge of God and the fact that people should do a service. This is the idea of chesed. This is the main disposition of the Mashiach ben David, and this is his main personality structure. Therefore, it comes out that the major task of the Mashiach ben Yosef is called Kfias Sitra Achro Bechol Madrigosel Tachas HaKedusha, which means the subjugation, the subduing of all the forces of evil in all its levels, you know, it's all of its manifestations, underneath Kedusha, that it should be subjugated underneath Kedusha, which means to be used in the service of the Rabbani Shlalem. That is the Tachas of the Mashiach ben Yosef. In order to achieve that, his main disposition is Gevura, strength. And he does that, as I had mentioned, by interacting with Ulam Hazeh and being Kivish Sahara. In other words, to subdue, to conquer his Yitzhahara, and that takes away power from the Sitra Achra, and therefore the original Kilkul is removed. The task of Mashiach Ben David is what's called his Pashtis Kedusha Bechol Madrigo Seho, to spread holiness, which means to Megali Yehudoi, to reveal the oneness of God, that idea throughout all creation, in all the levels throughout the entire universe. That is the tafkid of the Mashiach ben David. There was Tikkun Kedusha, to fix the idea or to impress upon oneself and, to, and everybody that Kedusha, the Hasog of Yehudoi, is the major focal point of all creation. That is the task of Mashiach ben David. Therefore, as a result of the Chet of Adam Rishon, we now see that two tasks became necessary. The first task is the, to remove the original Hassan, which was given to the Mashiach ben David. And the second task is the Kilkul that man contributed, that added Hester, that added concealment, and that was given to the Mashiach ben Yosef. And we see also that each one borrows, if we may say that, from the disposition of God. And therefore they have personalities suited exactly for what they have to do. Mashiach ben Yosef has the personality of Gvura. He has a very big Yitzhahara. 
and he has gvura, tremendous, awesome power to not to listen to the Eight Sahara, and that subdues the Eight Sahara. And as a result of that, you take away the power of the Eight Sahara. This is the idea of the Mashiach ben Yosef. And the Mashiach ben David, of course, has the different disposition, and that's chesed, that he wants to promote the belief in God, the oneness of God throughout all creation, that everybody should understand this and serve the Rabbani Shalom. Now, this is what we have said in a very succinct and very uh, short synopsis of what has been going on previously. And if you recall, that is the major two events or tasks which go on throughout all history. Now, how do we understand it in the terms of Yaakov and Esau? Okay, how do we understand it in terms of Yaakov and Esau? Now, once we understand this, then we see that history, which is nothing more than the progression of human events, is the determining principle of this, is nothing more than this simple idea, that history is the progression of all different kinds of attempts, all different kinds of endeavors or trials, to fulfill these two tasks by the two Meshichen and by their assisting agents. That's all history is. History is nothing more, again, because I'm trying to sum it up in a very beautiful statement. History is nothing more than the progression of attempts, endeavors, to fulfill these two tasks by the two Meshichen and their assisting agents. Which means that in the beginning it was Odom Rishon and all the Bnei Noyach, and then after they failed, it became all Israel, all Klai Israel. The Tumishichen and all Klai Israel are involved constantly to massacre the Bria, to correct these two situation, situations. One caused by the Rabban Islam, the Chesaron, and one caused by man, the Kilko. And therefore, the target or the objective or the goal or the aim of all history is to what? is to usher in the Moisa Mashiach. That's it. And all history can be understood by that central or these central ideas. Now, if that is the case, this must apply also to Yaakov and Esav. Let us now go back and see how this applies, of course, to the actual story of Yaakov and Esav. Now, if you recall, Looking and in order to understand Yaakov and Esav, we must first understand Avrami Yitzchok, and then you see how Yaakov and Esav beautifully emerge and what's really going on. If you recall that Chesed, which is one of the midas, the attributes or dispositions of the Rebbeinu Shlom, is on the Tzad Yemin, on the right side of Adam Kadmon, and I had explained all this in the previous shurim. Now, in light of that. The main disposition, or the primary disposition of Avram was chesed. So he borrowed from the chesed of the Rabbani Shalom, the desire of God to impart or bestow on others. Avram, his major primary disposition or attribute, was of course this chesed. As such, Avram of course was a shirish of the Mashiach Mendovit, and therefore he was involved in the tikkunim of that Mashiach Mendovit. Which is, what was the task 
of the Mashiach Ben David, his Pashtus Kedusha, to spread holiness throughout. And if you recall, that's exactly what Avram was doing. He was promoting the Rabbanishlam throughout the entire Brio, wherever he went. The Torah says he made Gerim wherever he went. That was his main work. That is the task of the Mashiach Ben David. You see? And the major disposition of that, of course, is Chesed. So we see exactly how Avram is Chesed, Asherosh is Mashiach Ben David, and that's exactly the work that he was involved in. Now, let's take a look at the next Midah of the Rebbe Givura, which of course is, means the strength to withhold, power to withhold or to restrain unnatural tendency. This also is a disposition of the Rebbe and it's on the Tzad Smoil, on the left side of Odin Kadmon, which I explained previously. Now, this was the predominant disposition of Yitzchak. God gave his left side, or his second midah, which is of course Givura, he gave it as a predominant disposition to Yitzchak. Because Yitzchak was a shirish of the Mashiach ben Yosef, and Yitzchak was involved in doing the task of the Mashiach ben Yosef. And what is that? To subjugate evil, to war with the Yitzhahara, to subdue it in the service of Kedusha, of holiness. Therefore, we find that Yitzchak was basically concerned with working on himself. He tremendously refined his personality and character on himself. And just as I mentioned, the Torah is Maram is that because the Torah calls him an Ola to Mima. God said to Yitzchak, you cannot go out of Eretz Israel because you are an unblemished offering. Avram offered you on the Mizbeach, right? And you had the right kavonis. Therefore, you are a true offering, unblemished. Okay? Now, why do they call Yitzchak an oiler to Mima? Why not just call him a korban to Mima, an unblemished sacrifice? Why oiler? Because that is the quintessence of Yitzchak. Because an oiler is kuloi kolil. It is completely offered up on the, uh, on the uh, Mizbeach, right? The Kohanim, no priests eat of any of the meat. Therefore, what Yitzchak's job was to completely involve himself in himself and not to benefit or promote among other people. Whereas by Avram, it was a different korban. It wasn't an oiler. For instance, by the korban Shlamim, the Kohanim eat. As part of the Avodah service, they also eat from the korban. Part of it is offered up on the Mizbeach. And also the priests also eat part of the korban. So therefore they benefit from the sacrifice. But by Yitzchak, he was an oiler. Nobody basically benefited from him because his task was not to impart or bestow or promote the knowledge of God in a very great sense like Avram. His basic task was to work on himself. Therefore, he was an oiler to Mima. He was an unblemished oiler, where his main avoid was preoccupation or intensive self-perfection, not promoting the knowledge of the Rebbe Shalom throughout all different uh, uh, places. That's why he's called an oiler, and not just a korban to Mima. But in any case, that's just uh, something which I, I had mentioned. Therefore, that's what Yitzchak was involved with. Okay, now, now we get to the meter of Tiferes which is the third disposition of the Rabbani which is exactly in the center or in the middle of Odom Kadmai. Now, if you recall, Tiferes is a balance between Chesed and Gvura. In other words, it's partialness. It's not complete Chesed, and it's not complete Gvura. 
In other words, it's not complete giving of oneself to others, and it's not complete being involved in oneself. This is the disposition of Tiferes. But there's a problem here. If you take this disposition and put it into one person, in other words, if one person represents Tiferes, just like Avram represents Chesed, and Yitzchak represents Gvuro, if you have one individual representing Tiferes, beauty, or truth, right? Then what would happen? This individual would have the disposition or the character trait of bestowing and imparting, right? Which means that he would be involved in what? In learning Torah, being masik the Yichud of the Vershlam, and also being Oived, doing the mitzvahs in a very intensive way, self-perfection, or rather... And then he would be, of course, involved not only himself, but to give it also to others in a very intense way. And he would have a second meter which means to withhold and to restrain one Yitzhah Sahara. He would be involved in that also. He would have to be tremendously involved or intensified in this area. So he would be out-directed, dealing with others, and in-directed, dealing with oneself. Therefore, this individual would come out being both the Mashiach ben David and the Mashiach ben Yosef at the same time. And he would be doing both their tasks, their tikkunim. Is that correct? But the idea is that this individual then would have two tasks, right? Because he would have Tferes, he would have Chesed and Gvura, Mashiach ben David, Mashiach ben Yosef. And he would wind up having two tasks. One would be his Pashtis Kedusha, to promote the knowledge of the Revolution throughout and to promote the service of God throughout. And he would also have what? Kfis Hora or Asitra Achra, Tachas Kedusha. He would be involved in fighting himself, in remaining a tzaddik in Ulam Hazer, interacting with Ulam Hazer, and remaining steadfast. This cannot be predominant in one person. Why? Because one cannot have the union of the Mashiach bin Dovid and the Mashiach bin Yosef together in one person at the same time. Because since they are two different tasks, they require an intensification of each of the disposition. One person cannot handle two incredible chesed and incredible gvura at the same time in one individual. You cannot have a sherish of Mashiach ben David and a sherish of Mashiach ben Yosef in one individual. So therefore, chesed, which is basically chesed, can go to one individual, Avram. Gvur, which is basically one midah, can go to what? Can go to Yitzchak. However, Tferes, which is really a balance between the two, how can one individual have it intensely in himself, battling the Sahara and doing turn mitzvahs and promoting to others? The tikkunim, or the tasks, or what has to be done by the Meshachim, are far too great that one individual would be doing this. He would be ripped apart. Because at one time, he's supposed to be battling Yet Sahara. And at the other part, he's supposed to be promoting the knowledge of the Rebbeinu to other people. You can't do that. It's very difficult to intensely occupy yourself in both areas. Therefore, you cannot have this union in one person at the same time. Therefore, what the Rebbeinu did is he split Tiferes. He took Tiferes and he split it into two different people. Okay? That is, therefore, he maintained the general balance, which means that Tiferes 
in both of these individuals, they would have chesed and gvura in a good proportion, but each one would have in a tremendous intensification either in gvura or in chesed, but not totally if, as if they had been the only chesed and only gvura, because remember, these two people have tiferes, so therefore there's a general balance. However, the Rabboni Shalom split tiferes into two people maintaining the general balance. The amin of tiferes, the right side of tiferes, right, which is the balance, which means that even though there's still a general balance, but there's a tremendous predominance of chesed, the Rabbi Shalom put into Yaakov. Yaakov Avinu got that. Okay? Therefore, the Indian of the Mashiach bin David went to Yaakov because that is one, the first major tikkun or major task that has to be done. Therefore, we find the disposition or that character trait is exactly what Yaakov was doing. Yaakov was involved with his Pashtas Kedusha. He was involved in learning Torah and doing mitzvahs. Right, and thereby promoting the rabbinism throughout. The left side of Tiferes, okay, which of course leans over to the Gvura, even though it still maintains the general balance of Chesed and Gvura, but it's primarily, it's predominantly Gvura, or tremendous power or might. This went to Esav. Therefore, the Indian of the Mashiach ben Yosef, that went to Esav. And therefore, Esav would be involved in to subdue the Yetzirah underneath Kedusha, to have it that Kedusha should ascend over the Yetzirah, the Sitra Achra, and thereby dissipate the power of the Sitra Achra to conceal the unity of the Rabbani Shalom. As such, we find that this individual would have to interact with the Ilam Hazer, right? He would have to interact with Olam Hazer in order to subjugate the Eight Sahara by interacting to subjugate the Eight Sahara and of course to turn it or to direct it in the service of the Rabbani Shalom. So this individual would therefore be preoccupied in working with self and interacting with Olam Hazer. Now, so what do we see so far until now? We begin to realize certain very interesting and very fundamental conclusions which most people don't realize. We see that Esav and Yaakov were both Kedushim at the outset. They were both holy. In other words, they were both not on the Tzad or the side of evil or somehow they were not at all involved in the Kedusha of Klai Yisrael. They were both Kedushim, both Esav and both Yaakov. They were both Kedushim. Not only that, and of course, the, and we see that, of course, because each one's shirish, each one's root, or each one sort of emanated from the midah, or the disposition of Tiferes. Therefore, obviously, if they both emanated from that midah or tefer, of Tiferes, then clearly they were both Kedushin at the outset. However, of course, the basic difference was that one was on the right, and the other was on the left. In other words, that each one, of course, had the general disposition of Tiferes, which of course means that there is a general presence of both Chesed, kindness, and Gevura, power or might. In addition, however, there were, there were very strong inclinations toward one side. Now, 
Therefore, as a result of this, that there were very strong inclinations of either Esau or Yaakov toward one side because of their different positions on the Mid of Tiferes. Therefore, one task, of course, was for each of the individuals because of their different positions on the middle of Tiferes. Esau, being on the left side, was involved, of course, in the union of Ben Yosef. And, of course, that was to subjugate the Sitra Akhra under Kedusha, to make war with the forces of evil and to channel it, to redirect those forces, of course, into serving the Rabboni Shlorim, in the service, of course, of Kedusha. Yaakov, of course, was on the right. And as such, he was therefore involved in the union of Ben Dovid, which, of course, was that to spread Kedusha, to do the mitzvahs especially, and especially to promote the knowledge of the Rabboni Shlorim, as the true cause and the true pivotal principle of all reality. In other words, Esav was essentially on the Gevur side of Tiferes, and Yaakov, of course, was essentially on the Chesed side of Tiferes. This then is basically what Yaakov and Esav were both involved in. Now, as such, their personalities reflected the fact that they emanated from that disposition of the Rabboni Shlom, which is Tiferes. In other words, uh, Esav, of course, who was on the left side of Tiferes, therefore his, what predominated in him was Gevura or strength. What that would mean is that he would have a tremendous drives and urges that would be fed to him, of course, by the Sitra Akhra. In, in sort of psychological terms, one could say that he had a tremendous libido, very great inclination toward gaiva and taiva. And this would constitute Esav's personality. And of course, the reason why he would have those, that kind of personality is that he could war with the Sitra Akhra and actually rule over it by mastering or restraining the taiva and the gaiva that he had. And therefore, of course, that would mean that since he had these these tremendous drives, he would be very restless. Therefore, he would tend to be an outward person, a person who would interact with the world, since he had these kind of drives, and then, of course, his purpose would always be to subjugate that. As such, he was given the opposite end of the Tivus, that strong libidinal force. He was given the Gvura, tremendous ability to restrain himself, tremendous impulse control. This is what Asaph had. A tremendous ability to restrain his own natural inclinations of arrogance, gaiva, and taiva, of course, which is pleasure. And that would be the gvura that he had. He had a very tremendous ego strength, impulse control. This, of course, is the, basically the idea of Esav. Yaakov would also, Yaakov, of course, would have the tendency of... of uh, Hispashtis uh, Kedusha, which would mean that his Yetzahara would not be that tremendous libido that Esav had, but his Yetzahara, or his inclination, would be to sort of like be lazier, not to want to spread Kedusha, not to be a, as big of a masmid. In other words, he wasn't bothered by the Yetzahara in the sense of his drives bothering him, and it didn't give him any peace or manucha like Esav. What he would be involved with 
is a desire not to learn, to be lazy, not to grow and excel in Kedusha. Sort of like more of a, a desire to be um, uh, not, not as energetic, more lethargic than Esav. Therefore, he would have to combat that tendency not to be a masmid to learn, not to be zealous in doing mitzvahs. He would have to combat that, and on the contrary, to be a masmid, to be a kanoi, a zealous, a zoriz in mitzvahs, to be a zoriz in promoting the Rabbani Shalom and spreading that throughout. You see, these are basically the two dispositions. Therefore, Yaakov, of course, would have that disposition, and therefore, a, a sort of like a uh, a also sort of like a gvura in order to fight this inclination not to grow rapidly in Kedusha, he of course would have a tendency to remain in, inside because he doesn't have the desire or he doesn't have that restlessness that Esav had that he has to go outside of his residence. Therefore, he would tend to be inside the house, more in terms of a homebound individual. And Esav, of course, would be more of an outdoors-bound individual. And as I said, that, uh, that Yaakov would have the disposition to be more quiet, more plain, more lethargic in that sense. And therefore his battle, of course, would be to become a Zoriz in Kedusha as much as possible. So therefore we see that this is basically what the inclinations of each one were, what their goals were, the objectives, of course, to subdue their different natural inclinations. Esav, of course, to um, engage in Taivas and Gaiva, and Yaakov to engage in more lethargic kinds of activities, not going outdoors. And of course, this also explains what, why their, what their particular environments were, that Esav would be more outward-bound, and Yaakov would, of course, be more inward-bound. Now, until now, we see basically how they were constructed what the constitutions of both Yaakov and Esav were, and also what kind of environments they dwelt with, they dwelt in, and also basically what their major tasks would be. We begin to see, as a result of this Hanocha, as a result of this inner theme, we now can begin understanding what was going on between Yaakov and Esav. But before I begin on that, it's important to understand Again, the equality that existed between Yaakov and Esau. Now, we see that both were on the same madriga. Both were on the exact same level of kedusha, of holiness. There was no difference between them, basically. In other words, it wasn't that Yaakov was greater, had greater potential than Esau. It's not true. Esau was as great, and perhaps even greater, as we'll see. And he certainly had the same potential as Yaakov, Toward Kedusha, which means that both could have received the same amount of Nevoah prophecy, the same amount of Hiskarvas, of coming close to the Rabbani Shalom. Both could have received the same amount of Vegas to the Rabbani Shalom. That's what's meant by the idea of Kedusha. This is what we see. Also what we see is that since both of them emanated from the Midah of Tferas, just like Avram was by Chesed, Kindness, Yitzhak was by Gvuru or Might, and Yaakov and Esau was Tferis, only having different positions. Therefore, they were both of us. They were both patriarchs, which of course is far different than the Shvatim or any of the other rest of Klai's rule. In other words, we remember that an Og is what's called a Shirish Kloli, a, a Neshama, a general Neshama, 
from which other neshamas would emerge with similar dispositions. In other words, that they had the power to implant in their neshamas different attributes and different tendencies, and that other souls or neshamas which would emanate from them would have similar attributes and tendencies. This is the idea of a shirish kloli, a general source, a general neshama that gives rise to other neshamas. So therefore, Yaakov and Esav both were of us, which of course is among the highest levels of, of, of uh, Pais where you can reach, and of course among the highest levels of Kedusha, and of course involves the greatest tasks of Klai Yisrael. Now, in addition to this, both had great tikkunim to accomplish. They both had to do tremendous tasks. They both had to execute different kind of achievements. Therefore, obviously if both of them had very great tikkunim corrections or modifications or rectifications that they had to do in the universe, clearly then they were both misaknim. They both had the ability to do this. Because obviously in order to achieve these tikkunim, they obviously have the power to influence the Bria. In other words, that the amount of presence or absence of the Rebbe in the Bria would be determined by the acts of these two individuals. Therefore, since we see that they had both had great tikkunim or tasks to accomplish, clearly they both had to be mesakinim originally. And they didn't have to be given the power of a mesakin at all. And you'll see why it's important to understand this later on. Now, also as a result, we see that both were at birth, both were Jewish. Both had Rivka and Yitzchak as a father and a mother. And that was they, both of them had the Ov, the Ovis and the Imos as, as of course, their, their, their lineage. So therefore, they were obviously both with true Jews. Therefore, when they were both born, they were already in the bris of Avram. They were both in the covenant of Avram. They didn't have to be given the covenant of Avram in that sense. They both were able to massacre the Bria, to correct the Bria, and it was hoped, of course, that this would continue. This is, of course, true for both uh, uh, Yaakov and, of course, Esau. Now, also, both of them, as we saw, were involved in the tikkunum, those specific tasks of the Meshichan, of the two Meshichan. Esau would be involved in the union of the Mashiach ben Yosef, and Yaakov would be involved, of course, in the union of Mashiach ben David. So look at all the kinds of equality that we see between Yaakov and Esav, even though they had different kinds of dispositions in which to do their tasks, but they basically were both fundamental, pivotal pillars of Klai Yisrael at the outset, remember. Certainly as time continued, of course, this changed. But certainly when they were both born at the outset, this is what the Rebbe had intended would happen. Now, Yitzhak and Yishmuel were not equal when they were born. Clearly from the fact that you see that they had the same father, Avram, but they had different mothers. Yishmuel had Hagar as a mother, and of course Yitzhak had Sarah. So they were unequal when they were born. However, Yishmuel also was in the level of an Av, in the sense that he would also give birth to descendants <clears throat> that would adopt his disposition. Yishmuel had the same idea. In fact, you see that the Arabs had the same disposition as Yishmael, that Yishmael's disposition was cruelty, 
because Chazal said that he shot arrows at, he mocked Yitzchak, and he was engaged in a lot of different uh, uh, licentious behavior and so on. At the same time, Yitzchak also had Mila, he, had, he kept a bris, and he also was involved in Chesed, because he learned that from Avram. And if you take a look at the Arabs today, the Arabs also are involved in these ideas from Yishmuel, that they also have Mila, that they have very big Balech HaSodom, in the sense that they're big Machnas Urchem, a guest by an Arab is sacrosanct, uh, but they're tremendously cruel people. In other words, a person who's a guest by them would be treated very, in, in a lot of reverence, you know, on the contrary, making comfortable and so on. But as soon as he walked out of the tent and he was no more under the protection of the Arabs, you can then, of course, stab him in the back. This, of course, is the, in, the inconsistencies that Yishmael picked up when he mixed his nature, of course, with the nature of Avram. But in any case, Yishmael was an of in the sense that he was a Sherish Kloli who could give different attributes and tendencies, different kind of characteristics to Nishomas who descend after him. And interestingly enough, we see that Yishmael had 12, also 12 descendants, similar to the 12 tribes. In any case, to go further, however, Esau and Yaakov were equal. It wasn't the same inequality that you find by Yishmael and, of course, Yitzchak. Now, what happens if Esau had adhered to his tafkid? What would have been? It's interesting to conjecture. What exactly would have Kleinus looked like had Esau actually done what his intended purpose was, what the Rebbeinu actually wanted him to do? Well, we see probably, of course, that since he was an Av, he would have had his own Shvatim, his own tribes. And one can perhaps say that he would have six, and perhaps Yaakov would also have six. But clearly what he would have been is part of Yisrael, because since he was from the Mid of Tferes, he was part of Klai Yisrael. And therefore, he of course would be part of Klai Yisrael, and as a Nov, of course, he would have Shvatim. So we can imagine how great Esav would have been. However, there would have been a difference in terms of what each one would have been doing. And there's a very interesting medrash in Shia Hashirim. The medrash in Shia Hashirim says the following, and I'll quote and translate. Kishem shechol Hashem al Yaakov, just like the name descended or was designated upon Yaakov, and the name means the name Yisrael, al It also should have been designated. It should have been also Esav should have also been, of course, uh, uh, called the same name, meaning Yisrael. What would have been Esav roi lahamid melochem? Esav would have given r- r- rise to kings. Which of course means the Inir ben Yosef, because Yosef rules over Ulam Hazer, just like we find Yosef at Sadik in Mitzrayim. That Yosef rules over, generally speaking, he rules over the world if he performs what he has to perform. So therefore, Malachim, of course, means the Inir ben Yosef, like Yosef at Sadik. And the Medrash continues and says, the Yaakov Kohanim. Yaakov would have established Kohanim, priests. And of course, what that means is Pashtas Kedusha, because it is the task of priests, of course, to spread and to serve the Rabbani Shalom and to spread that throughout, to basically deal with Ruchnius. And this would have been, of course, the task of Yaakov. However, in other words, that both Yaakov and Esav would be involved in what Yisrael has to be involved in. One would be fighting the Sitra Achra and channeling those drives toward. Kedusha, toward the Rabbanu and therefore dissipating the force of the Sitra Achra, 
That would be his task. And the task of Yaakov, of course, would be to spread and promote Kedusha or promote the knowledge of the Bershom throughout. In other words, both would be involved in removing the Hesti Yechudai. But there's two ways. One does it, of course, by dissipating the Koyach of the Sitra Achra, who creates the Hester. And the other would be removing the Hester by promoting the Rabbanishim throughout. Therefore, both would be doing the fundamental tasks of Klai Yisrael. One would be involved in the Kahuna, Yaakov, and the other, of course, would be involved in the, um, the Malucha, which, of course, is Esav. And the Medrash continues and says, And all these presents were taken away from him, when he sold his birthright to Yaakov. From that Medrash we see that both would have been involved in the Tikkunim of Klai Yisrael, and therefore, but only on different sides. But the task would be basically the same, and that is to remove the Hest of the Rabbani Shlom throughout the Bria, and to Magal Yehudai, because that is the entire task of the Mashiachim. Therefore, of course, as such, you would have two of us giving rise to different Shvatim. Now, of course, that doesn't happen because, of course, Esav rejected this and he refused, and of course, he became a Russia. What I had said previously, of course, was that just as we see, that, so we see, therefore, that Yaakov and Esav both should have been Yisrael. And as such, each one, of course, would have been doing different tikkunim. In other words, both would be involved in removing the Hester Yehudoi, the concealment of the oneness of God from the Bria. Both of them would be doing that, except each one, and therefore, of course, being Megal Yehudoi, they would reveal the unity of God or oneness of God throughout. But each one would be attacking it from two different ends. One, of course, would be dissipating this force of the Sitra Achra, who is the one who conceals a great deal of the Yehudah. And the other one would be spreading the Kedusha, spreading the knowledge of God. But they would be doing basically one task, which, of course, is what Yisrael should be doing. And since they're others, each one, of course, would have his own Shvatim. Now, however, of course, you may ask, well, what do you mean? How can Yisrael be derived from two different others? Because we're used to thinking the fact that Klai Yisrael comes from Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, and then you had the 12 Shvatim. How do we, where do, where do you see this that, do we see any kind of duplication of this, that Klai Yisrael could have two of us? And the answer is yes. We see clearly that Klai Yisrael is derived from different Imos. Clearly, we, with, in other words, right now, Yaakov is, of course, the, the of, and from him is 12 Shvatim, but there are four Imos. There are four mothers. All the Shvatim, of course, have Yaakov in common, but there are four different Imos. There was, of course, Rochel, Leah, Bilo, and Zilpah. And therefore, we clearly see that the Shevet Shvatim do not have to have the same mothers as long as they retain the paternal lineage. So basically, we see that they have to have at least the same father, right? No, it's not true. They don't have to have the same father either. They have to, however, maintain the lineage to the Ovis in general. Where do we see that? We see that by, of course, that um, we see that by Ephraim and Menashe. Why? Because by Ephraim and Menashe, who was their mother and who was their father? The answer was that Yosef was their father and Osnas was their mother. So therefore, we see that Ephraim and Menashe shared in common Yaakov with the other Shvatim, but they did not share their mother and their father. 
because the father and mother of Menashe and Ephraim was Osnas and Yosef, whereas the father and mother of the other Shvatim was Yaakov and one of the four Imos. So therefore, if Menashe and Ephraim, who are two Shvatim, on equal status as the other Shvatim, shared Yaakov in common, but to them it was their grandfather, and to the other Shvatim it was their father. So therefore, as long as they maintain their paternal lineage, they would be, of course, they could be, of course, Yisrael, or Shevet. However, they didn't have to have the same fathers, just like the Shvatim by themselves didn't have the same mother. Now, had Yisav therefore observed the mitzvahs and done, of course, his task, his tafkid, then you would have had the same thing. That Shvatim would have been derived from different mothers and different fathers. And all of them, the sons, you know, the Shvatim of Esav and the Shvatim of Yaakov, would have had not the fathers in common or the mothers, but what they would have had is, of course, the grandfather in common, which, of course, is Yitzchak. Therefore, again, had Esav done his tafkid, done his task, of course, he would have been part of Klaisrom, going into a different direction having his own Shvatim, and all Klai Yisrael, of course, both Yaakov and Esav and all the Shvatim, would, of course, been descended from Avram and Yitzchak, and that would have been their common paternal lineage, which, of course, would have made them Klai Yisrael. This is basically the theme, the underlying theme, the hidden theme, I should say, of what is really going on in the story of Yaakov and Esav. Now, therefore, we begin to see that the story of Yaakov and Esau that takes place through Toldes, Vayetzi, and Vayishlach, and actually also, as we will see later, through the other parshas in the Torah, in Breshis, namely Vayeshev, of course, Miketz, Vayigash, and Vayachid, that basically the story, the, the story's plot or the theme is how the Rabbani Shalom's plan was frustrated by Esau's riches because Esau became a Russia, so therefore he frustrated the plan of the Rebbein Shalom. And what Hashem did to compensate for this, as a result of the fact that Esau frustrated the plan of the Rebbein Shalom, the Rebbein Shalom clearly had to take another path. In other words, he intended that there should be two of us having Shvatim. And Esau, of course, frustrated that plan by becoming a Russia. Therefore, the Rebbein Shalom had to take another direction. So therefore we see that there was no guarantee in any time, in terms of the Ovis, that they would have Klai Yisrael from them. Until Yaakov finalized the concept of Yisrael, there was no guarantee, Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov, that you would have this finality. It required three Ovis to complete the different ideas. Then there would be a guarantee that no matter how sinful Klai Yisrael was, the revolution would not abandon them. But that would only be on the condition that Klai Yisrael finished the initial building, namely Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, okay? And, of course, it was supposed to be with Esav. Fortunately, Yaakov fulfilled, finalized that, because he at least maintained what his task was. But, again, there was no guarantee, and it's speculative to consider, thank, fortunately, thank God it never happened, that had Yaakov not done his task, so not only had Esav not done his task, but had Yaakov not done his task, what would have resulted probably would be is that the Rebbe Hashanah would have to look for another Ummah to be Klai Yisrael. Or he would have to make some kind of arrangement where he would have to lessen the requirements 
for Klai Yisrael to be called, for this uh, a particular nation to be called Klai Yisrael, thereby, of course, being much worse, because every time the Rebbein has to give up on a condition, then the, then the idea of Nam Sufa gets larger and larger. This is always the, the idea that continues. But, but that's important to remember, that Klai Yisrael was finalized only after they, all three of us finalized the idea had three of us not finalized the idea, as we see what almost happened, because Esav failed, and he was an of, Kleisville prob- probably would have taken another direction. But fortunately, Yaakov finalized the idea of, of course, the task of the Rebbein Shalom, which is to do the mitzvahs, and that's the entire idea of bris. Therefore, once the idea of Yisrael was finalized, then even if the Jews later on don't deserve it, the Rabbanishlam through a specific Hanhoga called Hanhoga Sayyichud, which I had spoken of previously, will ensure that Klai's world will massacre the Bria. And I'll speak about that a little more when I get more into Yaakov and Esav. In any case, we can now begin the Chumash to understand exactly how we see this theme and what was happening as Esav was becoming a Russia. And what did the Rebbeinu do to, of course, overcome this and make sure that Klai Yisrael would complete the Tikkunim because you need both Tikkunim. You've got to subjugate the Sitra Achra and you've got to spread Kedusha and both would constitute the Tikkunim that Klai Yisrael have to do. So therefore, what did the Rebbeinu do? Now let us begin to look into Chumash. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the beginning, Pasha's told us, and I'm going to begin in the narrative and, that had, then, and then at each appropriate place, I'm going to ask the question that I had asked previously, and we're going to begin unfold the entire story. Now, the Chumash says, of course, These are the descendants or progeny of Yitzchak, the son of Avram. Avram hailed as Yitzchak. Avram gave birth to Yitzchak. Now, I'm not going to comment, of course, on each Pasuk, because there are many different Foshim on each Pasuk the redundancies in each Pasuk and what they really mean and so on. I'm concentrating, of course, on the major theme of what's involved. Now, it says, When he was 40 years old, when he took Rivka, who was the daughter of Besuel, the Aramean, from Padnaram, and of course, she was a sister of Lobin, the Aramean, and he took her at 40, of course, to be to him for a wife. Now, it says that Yitzchok prayed to the Rebbeinu in front of his wife because she was barren, she couldn't have kids, and God, of course, allowed himself to be entreated, to be prayed to or asked by Yitzchak, and Vata Rivka Ishtoi. And then Yitzchak, in consequence, gave birth, or rather she conceived and she became pregnant. Now, it says, And the Bonim, the two individuals, the two sons in, inside of her, they struggled. Okay, now, if you recall that the I asked the Kasha that the Medrash says that Yaakov Avinu, what was the struggling all about? Well, by Yisroitz, who comes from the word rots to run. What it meant was that every time she passed a yeshiva, for instance, Shem Ve'ever, Yaakov, of course, would run to be born. He would try to break out because obviously he was trying to, he was going in the direction of Torah. And Esav, he would run, and every time she passed an Avedi Zorah, Esav, of course, would try to run to be born. So therefore, obviously, he had a tendency toward Avodah So the question is, if the drives were so great in terms of Esav toward Avodah then where is Bechira? How do we understand this? Now, we can now begin to understand, based on the theme that we know, 
what was going on. You should know that a person is given those conditions, his urges, his dispositions, all the kinds of the strength of the urges, the environment, everything, all the conditions which forces him into the area that he has to massacre. A person is placed into the arena that he must engage in in battle. He has no choice about that. He has no Bechira. Why a person is placed in that arena and not another arena, no man knows. Only God knows because that depends on the Shurish Neshama and things which are only is known to the Rebbein and is not known by man. However, we know that a person is designated for a specific spot, task, and in that he's born. He cannot choose what his task will be, what arena he will fight in, but he must fight in arena and his job is that whatever arena he has been designated to fight in, he's got to fight. He's got, you know, he's placed in the exact area, in the exact arena where his tikkunim, that which his tasks are, they will take place. But he has free will. He can either do his tasks or he doesn't have to do the task. Therefore, since the Indian of Esau, of course, is to masakin the Bria, in the sense that he is involved in the Indian of Mashiach bin Yosef, which is to subjugate the Sitra Akhra, you know, since he is that of that Indian, therefore he has been given tremendous drives from the Eight Sahara, and his purpose, of course, is to give Allah, to withstand those tremendous drives. Because one who is engaged in battle with the Eight Sahara gets everything the Eight Sahara has to give in terms of drives and tremendous libidinal forces in terms of the way they manifest themselves in the psyche of an individual. Therefore, his tafkid, his task is to subdue those drives. Therefore, if he was delegated to be in the union of Mashiach ben Yosef, which means to battle with the Sitra Akhra and dissipate his force, he is therefore given incredible drives in order that he should subjugate those drives and, of course, uh, be masakin, whatever he has to masakin. That's very important to see. Now, however, you may ask, so therefore Asa have Bechira. He merely had the drives which were incredible, but he still had free will. You may ask, however, how do we know? In order to have free will, if he had such incredible drives, then he clearly had to have a tremendous ability to be grave on those drives. Or else, what's the point? If he, if he, a per, even if a person has free will in the sense that he chooses, it's a first cause. If you recall what I said about free will, what the meaning of it and significance of free will is. But you can effectively negate somebody's free will by giving them a Zayat Sahara that there's nothing you can do. Therefore, clearly Asif had to have been given a tremendous power, might, ego strength, tremendous impulse control where he can channel this drives into Kedusha. So the question is, where do we see this? Okay, we see this from three different areas. The first area is Misvara. Clearly, the Rebbe does not make anybody a Russia. All men are created for a task and they have free will. Certainly if Esau was part of Tferes, he certainly had free will or the whole thing is negated. Correct? Therefore, Apisvara, Esau has free will. Merely by saying the fact that he had Tikkunim to do, he therefore obviously had to have free will which would mean they had the potential to battle those tremendous urges. In addition, you cannot call Esau a Russia unless he was Bechel Rishus. 
Chazal clearly called him a Russia. That Esav was a Russia because he did he, he, he did not have to, he could have done this and this, which I'll show you later. Therefore, Esav, of course, since he's called a Russia, clearly had Bakira. Therefore, since he chose evil, therefore he's called a Russia. And I'll elaborate on that uh, just a little later in terms of the forces that he had to contend with evil. However, Mitzad himself, Esav was given, so therefore that's the first idea. That he had to have Bechira Meisvara, and the fact that the Kazal called him a Russia means that he chose Rishus, therefore he can be called an evil man. A man who is forced to be evil cannot be called an evil man. He never chose to do it. Now, what the Rabbanishlam did to Esav is he gave him two incredibly powerful forces against Yitzhahara to help Esav. The first was an internal strength, which I will show you how, and the second was an external strength. The Rebbe took Esav and put him in an environment where you had Avram, one of, Yitzchak, a second of, and Yaakov, a brother. He had three people of incredible Kedusha that he could have learned from. Therefore, it's like somebody being brought up in the house of a Rosh Shiva. Obviously, he has a tremendous environment which is saturated with Kedusha, saturated with belief in the Rabbani Shalom. So clearly, his environment was incredibly conducive to being Yerush Shemayim and to doing what he had to do. In fact, he probably had the greatest environment of all. He had all three, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, in the same environment. So therefore, his environment was tremendously conducive in order to be uh, a Shem uh, Mitzvah in Torah, in order to fulfill his task, of course, which is to subjugate the Yitzhahara. That's the first thing that the Rebbe Hashem did. The second thing is he gave him tremendous power to overcome the drives. Where do you see that? Okay. It says a little further, And the youth, both of them, the young lads, grew up. Right, right, a couple of psukum later. When the Torah says, And he puts them in one posik, it doesn't say, And then, it says, So Chazal learned immediately that they were equal. That's an equality. That Yaakov was equal to Esav. Therefore, we see Chazal say that when they're growing up, you could not tell one from the other in terms of their acts. They were both the same. In other words, both had equal performances. Both did all the mitzvahs. That's the first thing you see. The second thing you see is that both were the same brilliance in learning. Does anyone doubt that Yaakov was not an Ilui? That Yaakov wasn't brilliant in his learning? But Esav was the same brilliance. So therefore, Esav had the same intellect as Yaakov because it says, Vayigdilu Hanoram. They were equal. In addition, they were also equal in terms of their performance, which also includes Midois, characteristics, that they both performed good characteristics, even if by Esav it was external. But the idea is that Esav was able to even control himself, even as a lad, at least externally, and not to show anybody. And the truth is, of course, that in terms of Midas, they were really the same, basically, even internally. Except Esav had a different disposition, which could always mean that he could destroy the ability to do Midas, internally and externally. But in any case, from Vayik Orm, you see the equality in the performance of their mitzvahs, in the brilliance of intellect, and also in the Midas Tevis that they were doing. Also, Vayigdulan Ora means they were both equal in terms of Tikkunim. They both had the same idea that they were both Jews and they both could Masakin, even though they were not being Masakin as yet. 
before Bar Mitzvah. But still, they both had the same potential. Therefore, again, we see, by Yigdur and Or means as an equality, therefore Esav had the same Bechira as Yaakov. But where do we really see the idea of the Gevura of Esav? More explicit than in Svara, in terms of a person, sh- of course, should be born with Bechira. The fact that Chazal call him a Russia. And also, the fact that it says, by Yigdul HaNa'orim, means Esav was equal to Yaakov, in terms of, obviously, clearly, his Bechira. Well, we see it in an interesting mitzvah. And that's where we really see the Gevura. The Zoya says that no man who ever lived was as great as Esav in the midst of Kibra over Aim. That when Esav was Mechabit, his father and mother, nobody ever equaled that kind of uh, excellence in that mitzvah. In fact, Chazal tells us that Omar Rabbin Shim Gamliel, that Rabbin Shim Gamliel said, that no one honored his father the way I did. This is what he says. But I found that Esav honored him even more. That Rabbin Shim Gamliel says that Esav was more Mechabit Kibra Oba'im than Rabbin Shim Gamliel, who was a Nasi, who was, of course, among the greatest of Tanoim. So imagine he beat out the Tanoim in his midst of Kibra of Aim. And according to the Zoya, and we see, of course, according to Chazal by Rabbi Shem Gamliel, nobody ever honored a person of parents as much as Esav did. Not only that, it says also that because of the midst of Kibra of Aim that Esav displayed, he is receiving reward for it even until now. That the Schar that Kibra of Aim has gone to Esav, Mamash Atsif Kaladiris. That's how great it was. Now, to give you just an inkling of how great he was, it says that in the midst of Kivravim, it said that when he would go and mishamish to serve his father, he would put on big day malchus, his best garments, his Shabbos begodim, or the begodim that you wear by festivities. Did you ever hear somebody changing his clothing when he has to go in to speak to his father, when he has to do and serve his father? It's unheard of. Esav did that. It shows you how far he went in Kivravim. And also, it says by Yaakov, when he's going to meet Esav, that he says, Hatzileni no mi Esav mi ochi. Save me from Esav, my brother. Why? Because I'm afraid of him. And Chazal say, the reason why he feared Esav is because of the kibbut of the aim of Esav. That connected Yaakov was far greater than Yaakov's kibbut of the aim. As we clearly see even later, when he went to Lovon and he never even contacted his father. So he was nenash, he was punished. But in any case, we'll see that later. But Yaakov Avinu was tremendously afraid of the mitzvah that Esau performed in terms of Kibra of Aim. Now, I ask the question, what's the significance of the fact that Esau observed Kibra of Aim? What does that mean? Okay, so therefore, we will see that the significance of the mitzvah is that it indicates the awesome gevura that Esau had. And you know why? A person who has tremendous drives, libido, a person who has tremendous gaiva, as Esav did, because Esav was a retzeach, a murderer, and a murderer, the hallmark of a murderer is gaiva. Why? Because he indicates that his needs come first, even at somebody else's life, that he's willing to kill somebody so that he can fulfill his needs. It means you're getting in my way, I'll kill you. That's retzicha. Retzicha. And Ritzichah, of course, is a manifestation of incredible gaival. 
In addition, and we also see by Esav that it says, that he despised the Bechira. So Esav is rejecting the authority of God. He, Esav, is despises the priesthood, the service that the firstborn would have to do. Therefore, that's another indication of the tremendous gaiva of Esav. In addition, of course, Esav was a murdered Baltaiva. So therefore, Esav's gaiva and his taiva, if, and of course he was given this because he had to fight the Sidracha, what do you think would be the most difficult mitzvah for Esav to perform, given his incredible arrogance? The answer is submission to authority. Obviously, an individual is an incredible bagaiva, the most difficult thing he finds to do is to submit to authority. That's the most difficult. Keep it over aim. What is that? That is submission to authority. So we find that not only did Esav do the most difficult mitzvah for him, not only did he do it, but he did it in the greatest in all history. And he, he had tremendous drives not to want to keep it over aim because he had incredible gaiva. So that shows him that when Esav finally decides to observe a mitzvah, right, he picks the mitzvah which is the most difficult for him and he observes it the greatest in all history. Could you imagine that man's gvura, how much he took that Yetzirah in this particular mitzvah and he bashed it all around. That's Esav when he decides to do a mitzvah. That is the significance of Chazal when they say, when they try to point out the kibur of aim of what Esav had. That's one of the significances. Because the kibur of aim indicates the awesome gvura that Esav had when he finally decided to do the mitzvah. In addition, we find further on that Esav again displayed tremendous gvura because when Yaakov so subtly deceived him and he took the brachas, we can imagine the rage that Esav was in, that obviously he wanted to kill Yaakov. And for Esav to be guiva on his incredible tendency toward gaiva and ritzicha, to Yaakov, because he didn't want to bring pain and sa to Yitzchak, again indicates his incredible gvura. Therefore, we see what the significance of the mitzvah of Kibra of Aim was. And therefore, we see clearly that Esav had tremendous amount of gvura when he wanted to do it. Therefore, he clearly had Bechira, even though he had a tremendous tendency toward Avedizorah. So when Chazal say that he ran toward Avedizorah, when Rivka passed Avedizorah, it merely means the tendencies and the drives, but it doesn't mean that Esav had to take that direction. He was supposed to be gover on that tendency to run toward Avedizorah. That was his tachlis. Now, interestingly enough, one of the also the results of the fact of Kibra of Aim is Chazal say, the Zoya says, that because Esav has such tremendous hachnot Yitzchak, tremendous submission to Yitzchak, because Esav had such tremendous submission to authority in the sense of Kibra of Aim, to honor one's father and mother, therefore what the Rabbani Shalom did is that he, in response to that mitzvah, what he performed, he would rule, he would dominate all mankind the longest. Because he was so great in his submission to authority, therefore, when it comes out that who would dominate the world, that Esau's, his descendants, which of course is Rome, 
and Western civilization after that, they would have the longest dominion of all. All other nations would be in submission to them. And that the Rebbe was a schah that he gave Esau. Because you, of course, submitted yourself and were machabed, honored your father and mother to such a great extent. Therefore, your reward will be that all nations of this earth will submit themselves to you for thousands of years. This is what the Rebbe did. That's also the significance of the idea of Kibrova Aim. And this the Zoya says. Now, I had asked the question that what is what can we see about the idea of Asov? What can we see, or rather, what is the essential characteristic of Asov? And therefore the essential characteristic of his descendants, since of course Asov is an Ov. And therefore, as an Ov, Asov is a shirish, a root. And therefore his descendants would inherit all the characteristics of Asov. They would have a disposition because he was a patriarch. So therefore, what was the essential idea or characteristic trait in Esau? And therefore, where do we see it in his, of course, descendants? And the answer to that is that we see that Esau observed religion. He observed Judaism because of Kibbutz over Aim. Because he wanted to please his father, he therefore observed religion. Therefore, he held Milo, Chazal say he held the mitzvah of Milo, and not only that, his descendants also held it until Yitzchak died. Then they let it go. But we see that he did observe some mitzvahs. Also, we see that Esau made believe to his father that he observed. He deceived Yitzchak because he didn't want to pain his father because he wasn't observing the mitzvahs. So we see, therefore, that Esau allowed his gaiva and taiva to be submitted to authority. Whether he observed the mitzvah, even if he had to deceive his father, but he allowed an authority to rule over him in the sense that he at least had to deceive the authority in order to go and do his chatoim, his gaiva, of course, and his taiva. Therefore, his, his, his descendants would have the same thing, that they would also submit to a religion. They would also submit to an authority. In other words, they would also have a, a great religion. And this religion would dominate the world for thousands of years because Esau, as I told you, keep it over aim, therefore the Rosham allowed him to dominate everybody, which means that his descendants' religion would dominate everybody. But the religion that was practiced by Esau was merely a deception, therefore the religion which is practiced by his descendants is also a deception. They employ religion for deception. In other words, they legitimatize all their urges, their gaiva, their ritzichot, their murder, their axorius, their incredible cruelty, their taiva, their materialism, under the cloak or the guise of religion. And of course, I refer to none other than Christianity, who has killed and butchered hundreds and hundreds of thousands and millions of Jews, all in the name of their savior, all in the name of their religion. They've done the, the, the worst crimes in all history, all in the name of their religion. And therefore, the same idea. They have used their religion in order to justify and legitimatize all their incredible murderous deeds and their incredible materialistic passions. That's exactly what they have done. And they have been following their, of course, uh, ancestor, which of course is Asaph, because he used religion in the same way. He deceived everybody. That's why Christians have the exact same way. So the same Gaivas and Tivus that Asaph had, except they must go through the same vehicle which Asaph did, and they have to make believe 
They have to pay lip service to their religion. Just like Asaph paid lip service to his religion in terms of uh, fooling, um, fooling Yitzchak. And we see, of course, that Asaph eventually evolves into Amalek because one of the descendants of Asaph is Amalek. So we see that eventually pure gaiva comes to the fore without any facade. No religion, no authority. And the hallmark of Amalek, of course, is pure, unmitigated, unadulterated arrogance. That's exactly where Amalek was in the Torah, that they were the first ones to fight Klai Israel because they wanted to destroy the entire concept that one has to submit himself to the yoke of the Rabbani Shalom. And of course, as a result of Christianity, uh, the entire Holocaust really transpired because Hitler, Yemach Shemoy V'Zichroy, used the arguments that the Catholic Church has used for thousands of years, that the Jews deserve to be killed, and therefore, because they killed their God, whatever, and therefore the Jews deserve to be exiled, and they are, of course, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the dust of the earth, and so on. Therefore, of course, Christianity gave the justification for Hitler, in order to, of course, wipe out so many Jews. Therefore, we see that uh, Asaph, of course, eventually dissolves or devolves into a molek, where you don't even have to have a facade of religion even to justify your tremendous cruelty in Arzuris. You just go ahead and be cruel and an Aksar. Therefore, the question that I asked, how do we, what is the essential nature of Asaph and how do we see it in his descendants, since Asaph was an Ov, is clearly shown by the entire manner how Asaph related with Yitzchak. It shows exactly how it transpired. Let's continue in the Chumash. So therefore it says, so she said, uh, why do I want to get pregnant if this is the pain that I'm going to experience? So therefore, So she went to inquire of the Rabbani Shalom, which means that she went to Shem, because he was also a Navi. And she went to inquire of him what is going on. And he answered her, and he said, There are two mighty nations in you. In other words, those two individuals in you are going to grow to be two Goyim, two mighty nations. But, both of these nations will split. Each one will go into a different direction. And one nation will be always stronger than the other. In other words, there is never going to be such a thing as equality. When one is great, the other one will be uh, uh, low, not great. And of course, when the reverse happens, then the other one, of course, will be on the bottom. There will never be an equality. And the eventuality of everything, of course, is eventually what will happen is that the great one will serve the less one. The older one will serve the younger one. Now, what Shem was telling her was not a nevuah in the sense that he was spoiling Esau's Bechira. He was telling her a nevuah mitzad, the idea of the Rabbani Shlom, that eventually this is what's going to be. But in no way does it stare Esau's Bechira. Just like God's foreknowledge doesn't stare, doesn't contradict a person's Bechira. As I pointed out before, when it says, Ki When God says to uh, Avram that your seed, your descendants will go through Yitzchak, and he was excluding not only Ishmael, if you recall, but he was excluding also Esau, that wasn't a um, what must happen in the sense that it interferes with the Bechira of Esau. It was mitzad, what would eventually come out, mitzad, the knowledge of God. The same ideas here. 
Now, Vayimluhu Yomel Lelides, and the days, of course, were full, and she began to give birth. Now, all of a sudden, Vihine Sim Vidna, she sees their twins. Now, the word Vihine and behold is a surprise, unexpected. Now, she did not expect identical twins, and that's exactly what they were. They were identical twins. She expected non-identical twins or fraternal twins because they were so different in their natures. You don't expect kids who have different natures, such radically different natures. One runs to Avodah Zarah and the other runs to uh, Terah. You don't expect them to be identical twins. You expect them, of course, to be non-identical or fraternal twins. So that's why she said, Vihine, behold, it was a shock. It was a surprise to everybody, especially to Rivka, that they were toimim, that they were identical twins. Now, we know now why they were identical twins. Because since they were both from the Midah of Tiferes, right? What is an identical twin? They come from the same egg and it splits. Fraternal twins are basically two different people that happen to be conceived, fertilized at the same time, and the mother gives birth to them around the same time. But they're not the same individual, because they have two different um, uh, ovums and so on. However, by identical twins, it's the same ovum egg that splits. So it's really the same person, same set of chromosomes and genes and so on. Therefore, we know now why they were the same, because they both came from the Medo of Tiferes. They both had the exact same disposition in terms of that Medo. Therefore, they were twins. And, of course, they were both involved in the tikkunim of the Mishichan, in a sense that they both had to be involved in removing the Hesti Yehudah, the Rebunishlam, and the Megali Yehudah. But, since they were in different positions on Tiferes, one was on the right, which was Yaakov, and Esav, of course, was on the left, therefore they differed in two ways. And that's why two letters are missing in Toimim, to indicate that even though they were twins, they differed in two fundamental ways. What was that? One is that their spiritual tasks were different. One was on the right of Tferes, and one was on the left of Tferes. Therefore, one was in the union of Ben Dovid, and the other was the union of Ben Yosef. That's why they differed on the Ruchnistigal level. And the second thing, therefore, is they differed physically. They both had two different kinds of physical dispositions. That's why, therefore, they, they, their natures, their physical natures were different, and of course, the appearances were different because, as we'll see, Asaph was red and hairy, and Yaakov, of course, didn't have any of these kind of features. Therefore, the reason why two letters are missing from the word Toimim is because they differed in those fundamental areas in the spiritual tasks, which is Ben Yosef and Ben David, and also in the physical appearances and features. They both had completely different physical kind of. Uh, conditions or constitutions. Therefore, even though they are identical twins, they were, however, different in those two ways, and therefore, two letters are missing. Now, what we have to remember <clears throat> is Toimim also, we understand now why Toimim, why they were twins, and we also understand the fact why the two letters were missing. Now, Toimim, of course, indicates, again, that both were exactly equal in Kedusha. In other words, both were Prujus, both could masakin the Bria in their individual tasks, and therefore both were equal in Kedusha in the sense that they could get to the same level of Dvekas to the Therefore they were on the same level. That's why they were twins. 
And Malachi, in Malachi it says in the first parak, Bahaloi och Yaakov. And what the seed of that posik is, it says, and behold, Esav is a brother to Yaakov. And what the Rebbe is saying there is, Esav is the equal of Yaakov at the outset. And not only that, but you'll see over here it says, And after he went out, after Esav went out, it says that, That his brother went out. And when the Torah refers to him as his brother, again it's signifying that they were equal in all these ideas. But the differences were that they had different tasks to perform, and therefore, and also that they were physically, the, the constitution of both were different. And that is indicated by the two letters which are missing in the word toimim. Now, to go further, in the Posseb. Vayetze Horisho in Admoini, the first one came out, he was red, he was reddish. Kuloi Kader he was hairy like a fur coat, and they called his name Esav. Now, why was Esav red? What is the the implication of the reddish constituency, because red is, of course, is the color of war. And what was the task of Esav? To war with the Sitra Akhra. His task is to always be in conflict with the Sitra Akhra, to subdue it. That was his war. In other words, when you war with an enemy, therefore, he has the color of red. But Yaakov's task, of course, was also war with the Sahara, but it's not the power of the Eight Sahara, which really lies in the Taivas and Gaiva of Ulam Hazer. So therefore, it's not the same kind of war that Esav had. His was a real war with the Sitra Akhra, and therefore he was read to indicate that he was a man of war, reddish, bloody. That's why, of course, he was red. Then it says, After that, his brother went out, which again, as I pointed previously, indicates that he was equal to Yaakov because the Torah calls him that he was a brother. Now, to go further. It says that the Yodi Oichezis Ba'akev Esav that, that uh, Yaakov was seizing <coughs> The heel of Esau. What does that mean? And then it says, Vayikushmo Yaakov, and therefore his name was called Yaakov. And Yitzchok has been Shishim Shonu Beledes Hesom. Yitzchok was 60 years old, of course, when they were born. <clears throat> what is the significance of the fact that Yaakov <clears throat> was holding the heel of Esau? What does this mean? Well, <clears throat> we can see that there, are, that there are six different meanings what this means. In other words, the, this Viyodi Achezes Ba'akev Esav indicates six different ideas that will emerge as a result of this particular position that Yaakov was holding onto the heel of Esav. Now, in terms of the normal shot, according to the entire theme, it indicates that Yaakov follows Esav because he's at the heel of Esav, which means, of course, that the union of Ben Dovid, right? In other words, the task of Ben Dovid and the coming of Ben Dovid goes after the union of Ben Yosef and the task of Ben Yosef and the coming of Ben Yosef, right? Therefore, Ben Yosef is first. Therefore, as a result of that, Esav would come out first and Yaakov would come out second because this is the order 
of what they had to do in the Bria. That the Inyan of Ben Dovid and his coming, of course, would be after the Inyan and the coming of Ben Yosef. And since Yaakov was in the Inyan of Ben Dovid and Yosef, and Esav, I should say, was the Inyan of Ben Yosef, therefore Esav came out first, and therefore Yaakov <coughs> followed him. This is the meaning according to what should have been, according to the Bechira of Yaakov and Esav. The Torah, however, incredibly, includes in the exact same metaphor what would happen eventually, in truth, according to the Nebuah of the Rabbani Shalom. So in other words, one, one expression indicates all ideas, in the sense that it says what should have been, in terms of Yaakov and Esau, in terms of the Bechira, what God wanted initially, and also it indicates other ideas which would say what, what would truly happen in terms of the knowledge of God that Esau would fail. Okay, So therefore, according to the Nevoah, the prophecy, or rather according to the knowledge of God, there were five other prophecies which were included in Yodoi, Echezes, Ba'akev, Esau, that Yaakov's hand seized Esau's uh, foot. There are five other prophecies, and let us begin to enumerate them, because they're really very important, and they're really very critical in understanding the entire relationship between Christianity and Judaism because they really indicate, or between Rome and Jews, Judea, what's really going on between. And all this is really indicate, indicated in Viyodi Ochezes Ba'kev Esav. However, I see that it's late, so I'll have to continue it in the next shir. Actually, we can describe the tasks of, of Yaakov and Esav, and in terms of the order, in terms of how they were born, as the classic Chazal, which tells you, Su First, you must remove yourself from evil, and then you can do good. It's the same idea. First, you have to contend with the Sitra Akhra, and you have to remove his influence from you. That's fight, dissipate his power, and remove him from you. Then you can set about increasing the amount of Kedusha within you. So we see that Sumira, turning from evil, precedes across Asetoiv, doing good. The same idea with Yaakov and Esav. Esav was in the beginning of Sumira, to fight with the Sitra Akhra, to dissipate his power, to remove that evil influence of the Sitra Akhra over the Bria, in which the Sitra Akhra is concealing the oneness of God. And Yaakov, of course, is involved in Asetoiv, to promote the concept of Kedusha, through, Kedusha throughout, to promote the idea, of course, and the true knowledge that the Rebbe of course, is the true underlying principle of all reality. So therefore, the idea of Sumira Asetoiv is basically also a metaphor for the tasks of Yaakov and Esav, and just like Sumira comes first, Esav comes first, and just like Asetoiv comes second, therefore Yaakov comes second. I will continue with the other uh, uh, meanings in Yodei Echezes Ba'kev Esav next week.